The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. So today we are excited to announce that in addition to what we said with the original bill, which was the largest investment in local government in state history, we are actually even going to be bigger with the bill that we announced today. The Assembly Republicans put forward their latest and possibly last iteration of a shared revenue proposal. But the Senate says not so fast. Meanwhile, funds for counties, cities, and villages are running dry. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Tonight on Here and Now, the latest on plans to fund local governments, including how one city is making tough choices without increased funding. Revenue Secretary Peter Barca weighs in on how the federal debt dilemma is impacting Wisconsin. Deadly reckless driving continues to wreak havoc in Milwaukee. And a report on how predictive modeling assesses graduation rates for Wisconsin students. It's Here and Now for May 19th. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. At the Capitol this week, Assembly Republicans released their changes to the shared revenue bill to increase funding to Wisconsin communities. Within their proposal, local governments across the state will now see additional increases, except for Milwaukee, which is to remain capped at 10 percent. What hasn't changed is the provision allowing Milwaukee to impose a sales tax, but this must be approved by voters through a county referendum. Governor Tony Evers had expressed optimism regarding ongoing negotiations with Republican leaders, but not long after making that statement, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said they are done negotiating. We feel like the bill that's coming forward is the result of those good faith negotiations. Uh, everybody has to take their own position, but we are done negotiating. Uh, we are not going to take changes. We are not going to change the bill substantially. What we have before us is the deal that we are going to send to our colleagues in the state Senate. But the speaker's colleagues in the state Senate were not happy. You know, there are two houses in, in the state legislature and uh, it's unfortunate that he's drawing the line in the sand now with um, his version of the bill and stopping negotiations on a bill that not everybody's in agreement on so um, you know we're going to do our due diligence make sure we have a bill that at least all the stakeholders uh, can get behind and uh, if if the assembly at some point refuses to take up that bill a bill that is going to make generational changes to townships counties municipalities all around the state um, he's going to have to answer to his caucus at that point again the assembly bill bumps up the minimum increase in shared revenue for counties and small cities to 15 percent here and now senior political reporter zach schultz takes us to the city of broadhead in green county and tells us even 15 percent doesn't solve all of their revenue problems government is just slow edward and casey jones wanted to be the mayor of broadhead since he first ran at age 18. And my campaign was to drive around the streets of Broadhead, honking the horn, and vote for Casey. <laughs> he lost that race and then spent most of his adult life living out of state. So when he moved back and won his race for mayor in 2022, he had a plan. I figured I could run it like my businesses. I have several businesses I run. So I figured I could run it like that. However, it's not even close. It's very slow. So 
The first thing he ran into was a city budget that had been starved of an increase in shared revenue for a decade. There, there's not a lot of other things to cut anymore. Then the Broadhead Fire District, serving the city and several rural townships, decided to move from volunteers to full-time staff. The city's portion of the increase was more than $300,000 a year. Last year, if we wanted to have a balanced budget, we were going to have to cut about $330,000. 10% of the budget. Instead, Mayor Jones sent a dissolution letter to the Broadhead Fire District, starting the process of breaking up the fire department. He says it wasn't just a negotiating tactic. Anything that you, you do where you're cracking eggs and you're busting and you're changing stuff, um, you have to have a backup plan. So we did have a backup plan, and it would have been a very viable backup plan. However, our first thing was to sit down and say, how do we fix what we have? The city and rural halves of the fire district were able to negotiate a deal that kept the volunteers. But it was a one-year fix, while the city of Broadhead went to referendum in April to ask the voters for an extra $400,000 a year. We're going to give the people the choice. They can vote on it. If they vote no, then the next year we have to cut social programs. And then we uh, lost the, uh, the referendum. It's great to be here in the Wisconsin Dells today. Thank you all. Jones knew the stakes for his city when he traveled to Wisconsin Dells and waited six hours to get his two minutes to speak before the Joint Finance Committee. I am uh, Mayor Casey Jones from the city of Broadhead, the middle of everywhere. Um, kind of wonder why I don't have my suit on. I retired 20 years ago, and that was the last time I wore a suit, and it didn't fit. Jones explained That's without an increase in shared revenue, um, he would have my, to close the pool uh, for the summer. It's my hometown. We had a pool. We had Parks and Rec. We had all those things. And it looks like my hometown is no longer going to have them. So that's how dire it is. The pool costs about $80,000 a year. The most recent version of the Republican plan would give Broadhead an extra $109,000 a year. I think at the very least we can delay some of the things for, for a while down the road. So while the pool will stay open this summer, Jones knows this isn't a permanent fix. But um, it's a start, and that's you got to take little victories. Reporting for Broadhead, I'm Zach Schultz for Here and Now. In Washington, fears over a national financial default have lawmakers scrambling to make a down-to-the-wire deal once again to raise the debt limit. But what exactly would a federal default or even a near default mean for Wisconsin's economy? We turn to the Wisconsin Department of Revenue Secretary, Peter Barker. When we come so close like this um, to the U.S. government, um, going into default, does, does reaching the edge do its own kind of damage? It certainly does. You know, in 2011, the last time they came up to the edge of uh, default under the Obama administration, our credit rating for the nation went from AAA to AA plus, and it's never been elevated again. So if they do this again, you know, we very well could uh, see another downgrade, which is, you know, catastrophic in many ways, because, you know, first of all, it costs more than for the federal government to borrow. Um, secondly, uh, the markets always tip, which means that for seniors uh, who you know, are dependent on their 401ks, they get extremely worried and, and usually they take a dip. And so just even being close is bad enough. But if they default, then we're talking about significant problems of you know 16,400 jobs lost in Wisconsin, according to 
Moody's Analytics, uh, a 0.55% decline in payroll. That means our withholding taxes go down, corporate taxes go down. So it would have a very uh, deleterious effect on, on Wisconsin as well. Where and why are those jobs lost? Well, because what ends up happening when the markets suffer, so that's the first stage, then investment dollars also start to dry up. So businesses that maybe were gonna expand or were dependent on having extra capital in order to meet payroll, all of a sudden have to lay people off. And that's the other devastating thing is, you know, is the effect is uneven. You know, it affects senior citizens on fixed incomes who are dependent on investment income. It affects young people who are usually the first ones to be laid off. So it's not a, an even effect and those people that are sort of middle income or the lower middle income, you know, uh, edge of society, uh, they always get hurt the worst. And then there's kind of this the specific, very instant effect, right, um, of people potentially not getting their Social Security checks. Well, of course, yeah, and that's not even that's not even looking at that because if in fact they do default, then the Treasury Secretary Secretary has to start triaging and making very difficult decisions about whether or not you're going to get the Social Security checks out on time, and you know whether or not people who let's say are, are just about to qualify for Medicaid or Medicare, maybe they have to do something in that regard. Of course, there's been a lot stated about veterans and their benefits and how they're at jeopardy as well. So it, it has an incredible ripple effect. And, and the part that's so sad is it's so unnecessary. You know, I mean, you know, three times in the Trump administration, they, they did this. I mean, I'd like to think of it as a family. Like when our credit card bill is due, I don't say, well, Unless my family agrees to make changes in our family budget, I'm not going to pay. So then I have to pay interest and penalties. You pay your bills when they're due. And then you make decisions as part of the budget process of, you know, what's the appropriate level of spending or tax relief or whatever the case may be. So there's absolutely no reason why they need to do this at this juncture. And it's at a very, you know, perilous time because of the Fed's increasing income interest rates. I mean, we saw even for the Fiscal Bureau, we've seen a slight dip terms of our projections of the surplus and you know we're still in very strong shape but you worry about the trajectory and if we're going to stay in that type of shape. So Moody's um, says that it's really not likely that this is going to happen and yet Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says hold on people June 1 is the day she seems to really be sounding the alarm on right. this. Um, what do you think? Knowing that we don't want to get up against that last day or two in case it takes longer to get the votes or in case something goes sour at the last minute. We're playing with fire here. We're playing with people's lives. We're playing with the, playing with the economy and, and the effect on so many families that uh, I just hope to goodness that they you know, are able to do something in the next week. Speaking of um, McCarthy and his caucus and his members, um, is it worse now, this kind of uh, up to the brink? I think it is because you know, in the past, you know, whether Democrat or Republican speaker or Democrat or Republican majority leader in the Senate, generally speaking, you know, the, the members trusted their leaders and they were going to vote accordingly to whatever deal was reached. But when McCarthy, who agreed as part of the deal to become speaker, that any one member could bring up a vote to remove him, um, you know, he's got to be all the more careful about what deal he strikes. And I'm sure he must have to be on the phone continually because he has such a narrow margin on votes to begin with. Have we seen any indication yet, because we are so close to that June 1 date, 
um, in markets or anything like that? Our economists are watching this very closely, uh, you know, and, and we're very nervous ourselves. I mean, we, we do not want to see at a time when Wisconsin's never been stronger economically, where, you know, we do have a AAA bond rating for the first time in 40 years. We do have the lowest number of people on unemployment ever. We've got one of the greatest growths in manufacturing jobs. This is the last thing we want to see right now. In public safety news, last weekend in Milwaukee, five people were killed, including a baby, when police say a driver going 80 miles an hour on a city street ran a red light. The 20-year-old behind the wheel did not have a license, according to police. Reckless, deadly driving in Milwaukee has had the attention of residents, police, and lawmakers for years. In 2020, a record 107 people in the county died because of it. Last week, Governor Tony Evers signed into law a bill that doubles the fines for reckless driving, including a maximum fine of $4,000 for causing bodily harm and up to six years in prison. Our next guest would say it's about time. Tracy Dent, known as a Milwaukee activist and director of the Peace for Change Alliance, has been active on this frightening problem in his city, and he joins us now from his vehicle in Milwaukee. And thanks very much for doing so. Uh, thanks for having me. So two years ago, you were quoted as saying people were tired and afraid, and this problem persists. What was your reaction to the deadly crash last weekend? Yeah, so like two years ago, like I said, it was tired and afraid, and now we're tired and we're angry. Um, this That should have never happened. You know, even a baby was killed. And... It's devastating. The whole the whole city is devastated, and we're tired and we're angry, and and it's time for action. Um, yeah, that's that that's what it, that's all the all the emotions. You know, it's time we're fighting back basically, and yeah. So you are an Uber driver, and uh, you yes. drive the streets of Milwaukee. What is that like? It's like it's like the Indy 500, you know. It's <laughs> it's like people cut you off, um, people running red lights, people are just. I mean, they're just reckless out there. It's like they don't have no sense of value of life. Um, I've you know, there's been a couple of times where, you know, I almost was in a serious accident because somebody just blew through a red light, somebody blew through a stop sign, somebody just just all of a sudden out of trying to beat the traffic and turn right in front of us. And it's just, you know, it's like, you know, it makes people not want to drive anymore, you yeah. know, because it, because it's so uh, crazy out here. So recent studies uh, on this problem have shown that it is increasingly and disproportionately a problem in uh, black communities. What is that about? Um... That, that, I mean, you you see a high sense of uh, reckless driving on the north side of Milwaukee. You can say the black community, yes. I think that um, we on the black community, I mean, uh, on the north side of Milwaukee, we are so relaxed when it comes to um, traffic safety. And then in the black community, I mean, like everything, you know, we, we stay... You know how like in Milwaukee is so segregated. Right. You know, on the north side you got the black community and and just people just, you know, they just have no value. 
And I always say it like this, we have to be more, we got to be more tough on crime here in Milwaukee, especially on the north side, uh, because these same drivers would not do this in the, in the uh, suburban, out, you know, suburban um, cities. Mm -hmm. They won't do it in Oak Creek. They won't do it in South Milwaukee because they know they have zero tolerance there. And we need zero tolerance here in Milwaukee. So what is the mindset of drivers who roar around behind the wheel blowing red lights? Um, they think it's cool. They, they do it. Some some record it and and put it on social media, you know, for for views, for for likes, uh, for attention. Um, they just you know that's the the end thing. That's pretty much what it is. You know, it's like they just want to just you know just speed. It's like they have no sense of value of life. And if they don't care about their lives, why should they care about yours? Yeah. How, you know? how, how and that you, goes for, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. How, how do you think the new law that increases fines and jail time might affect this, might change this for the better? Um, I, I support it. Um, you know, some people say, like, we, we don't, you know, we don't need the pipeline to prison. We need more resources. And that's true. But they also have to uh, own up to their actions. And right now it's like, you know, the law is uh, afraid to apply tougher penalties on, on people of color because they're tired of seeing um, people of color in prison, in jail, you know. And we have one of the highest uh, incarceration, incarceration rate in the country so therefore, they try to be more lenient when it comes to um, traffic violations, you know. But now it's time because we're losing people. It's time for zero tolerance, period. So I support the double uh, fining and, and jail time. Um, you got the younger generation feels that the, the current, what's going on right now with the current law is a, is a joke and is a slap on the wrist for, the, for teenagers. It's like they'll get arrested. A few hours later, they're back out, and they're out there still in another car and driving off again. Um, you know, and that's why we need to have zero tolerance in the city of Milwaukee. You know, and we have to mimic the, you know, the Oak Creeks, the, the South Milwaukee, West Dallas, um, zero tolerance policy when it comes to uh, reckless driving. All right. Uh, Tracy Dent, we need to leave it there. Uh, thanks very much for your comment on this, and uh, stay safe out there on the roadways. All right. Thank you. Turning to education, a sophisticated algorithm called the Dropout Early Warning System, or DUES, used by the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction, is one of only a few like it in the country. The system tries to predict whether a student exiting middle school is likely to graduate from high school. This is according to a report from The Markup a publication that looks at the use of big tech. The predictive model uses a number of data points, including test scores, disciplinary records, and family income. But a unique and controversial data point used by the dues system is race. DPI says, quote, dues uses what already has happened in the past to predict what will happen in the future. 
all in order to change course in the present and help ensure students identified as at risk of not graduating on time do in fact graduate on time by directing resources, supports, and interventions toward students that may need them. For more, we turn to the report's author, Todd Feathers. And thanks very much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, you seem to have uncovered a prediction system for high school graduation that most of us have never heard of. Um, what is it and how does it work? As you described very well, is a system built in 2012 that uses machine learning algorithms to predict whether students will graduate on time. Um, and the system generates a prediction for every student in sixth through ninth grade in the state. Um, and it also labels them either high, moderate, or low risk of dropping out. Um, this is supposed to help schools and direct resources, um, support to the students who need it most. But what we found is that the system is wrong nearly three quarters of the time that it predicts a student won't graduate. Um, and it's wrong more often about the black and Hispanic students not graduating than it is about white students. On top of that, at the same time as our reporting is going on, some academic researchers based out of the University of California, Berkeley, conducted a study, the largest of its kind, on dues that found that the system has not you know, achieved its primary goal of improving graduation outcomes for the students it labels high risk. So this question, if it's wrong according to your reporting three quarters of the time, why is that? So by some standards, you know, dues is very accurate. It's correct 97% of the time that it predicts a student will graduate. But what DPI did when they were designing the algorithm is they calibrated it to kind of accept, um, you know, a, a greater rate of false alarms is a good way of thinking about it. You know, predictions that a student who, who does ultimately graduate won't graduate. So they're saying, we're willing to label a lot of students, you know, likely non-graduates um, in order to make sure that we capture all of the ones who ultimately will drop out. Could it be um, an error uh, as a result of resources and inputs being given to the students that might um, be predicted not to graduate? Um, that's one of the things that the University of you know, California uh, Berkeley researchers tested for. And if the system was working as intended, the resources were going to students labeled high risk, we would expect to see, you know, kind of 10 years of data um, and improved graduation rates for those students labeled high risk. But the data showed um, that there was no, you know, impact on graduation rates from, from being identified by the system. Hmm. Turning um, to another data point uh, that's loaded into this algorithm, and that is race. Uh, something you call in your article, quote, a racially inequitable algorithm built by the state of Wisconsin. What did you learn about why race is used as a predictor? Yeah, well, I think it, it's important to remember that this algorithm was built, you know, designed back in 2012. And, the, you know, we've come a long way since then as far as how we understand algorithms and how we understand algorithm bias and the way that, you know, data points like race, um, you know, factor into these predictions. And I, I think one thing that's happened here is that, you know, this algorithm hasn't really changed much since it was initially designed. Um, and, and back at that time, and even still currently, some, you know, researchers in this field of early warning systems will say that um, using data points like race improves the accuracy of these algorithms. It, it makes it them better at, you know, predicting who, you know, will and won't graduate high school. You can kind of see why that might be the case. I mean, in Wisconsin, there are some pretty stark racial disparities in graduation mm -hmm. rates. White students graduated at much higher rates than black students. But, you know, a, 
a growing body of you know research, um, you know, and, and academic arguments say that you know that small boost in accuracy you get is not worth you know, encoding um, what oftentimes is you know, systemic and historical biases. I do want to get to um, something that uh, the DPI uh, told us. Uh, you quoted a DPI spokesperson in your article uh, who said the education system is systemically racist, but she told us, quote, when it comes to labeling students, I agree that we should be concerned about the impact these words have on our learners, and yet the intention of the label is to provide access to the interventions these students need. I wish we didn't need a label to open those doors, but it is an attempt to provide resources to the learners who need them most, and to do that, schools need to be able to identify them. Uh, how in your reporting uh, did the students you interviewed feel about being labeled as high risk and furthermore uh, potentially being one of those uh, where race was put into this algorithm? Well, you know, the first thing is that none of the students we spoke to knew that this algorithm even exists or, or that, you know, their school is potentially looking at this information and making decisions about how to treat them, which I think, you know, shocked a lot of the students. As I said, it certainly shocked me when I first heard about it. Um, but the, the, the Black and Hispanic students we spoke to, you know, described for us that they often felt like they were part of you know, secondary school systems within their own schools, that they were treated differently um, than white students. And that they feared that having these kind of behind-the-scenes labels would, you know, just perpetuate, um, you know, kind of subconscious or, or conscious biases that, that educators have about them. You, know, you can imagine, you know, especially for incoming ninth graders who, who are, you know, coming into a new building, none of the adults there know them. The first thing that you see about a student is, you know, a label, high, moderate, or low risk, and it's hard not to draw, um, you know, certain conclusions. All right. Todd Feathers, uh, really complicated and interesting reporting. Thanks very much. Thank you so much again. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the News tab. Join us next week when Marissa Wojcik reports on what to expect from ticks and Lyme disease this season. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.